Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today we're discussing the widespread, almost universal belief that God, a belief in God, is necessary to ground morality. People hold that only God can be the source of moral imperatives. I'm going to argue that not only is that false, it's the exact opposite of the truth. God is the destroyer of morality. It's God versus the good. What is morality? Morality, in my definition, is a system of principles to guide a man's choices. So the crucial issue is to guide them towards what? And that's a uh, answer, uh, that's a question that was answered by Ayn Rand, and a little later we're going to get into her answer. But let's first look at why I say God is the destroyer of morality. When people think and, and claim that you need God to have a moral code, what do they have in mind? You need an external system of restraints, of thou shalt nots, or else people will run wild. If there's no authority to command us, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, etc., people are going to steal and murder. Now, we're going to look at two aspects of that because that's a bizarre and insulting claim. It's bizarre because it substitutes fear of consequences for morality. If some powerful being, let's assume it's a human being, a dictator, Putin, commands you to kiss his boots and you do it, is that a moral act? No. It's an action based upon your desire to avoid the punishment that he can inflict. Even if it's a reward, if it's an external reward, you do it because there's going to be heaven in the religious version or lots of money in the Putin version. That's not a moral act. You're not being moral if you do something because somebody else has promised you a reward or threatened you with a punishment. To be moral, an action has to come from your own values, from your own spirit, from your own soul, not just you're placating a dictator. God is the dictator of the universe in the religious conception of God. And he commands the equivalent of Putin commanding you to kiss his boots. He commands you to worship him, the first commandment. 
I am the Lord thy God, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. Obey me, worship me, praise me, beseech me, humble yourself before me. I am everything, you are nothing. That is not a view that leads to moral action. That's a view that leads to scared, obedient action because you're worried about the consequences. Or it's an action cynically calculated to get your reward that you can't see any reason for. Socrates, in one of the early Platonic dialogues, raises the question that's so apt here. When the gods tell you to do something, do they tell you to do it because it's the right thing? Or is it the right thing because they tell you to do it? This is the only two possibilities. If it's right because they command it, and there's no further explanation or meaning to it, it's just they want it, they want you to do it, they insist that you do it, they threaten you if you don't do it, then it's not morality. Then it's not good. It's just the whim of a very powerful being, all-powerful. That's not morality. On the other hand, suppose that God commands what he commands because he sees that it is good. He recognizes a goodness. I feel bad because there is no God, and I'm talking as if there were, but for the sake of this argument. He recognizes that in reality, something is good. Like, it's good to honor your father and your mother. I would take issue with that, but let's suppose that somehow that in reality, apart from God's recognition it already is the good and god just says hmm, i see that's the good that's what i'm commanding well then you don't need god it's a fact it's accessible to your mind the fact that god endorses it means nothing metaphysically it's not that you you don't need god then to have morality at most, you need God to have it explained to you, except the things that are asserted are so primitive and silly, either silly or self-evident, that you don't need any special explanation. It's not like God makes you see, oh, now I see I shouldn't kill. He gave me the the sacred wisdom he implanted in my mind. I thought killing was good. No, now I see, by not by logic or reason or understanding, but by God's putting the, the meaning of it into my mind that it's not good to go out and kill somebody. Thank you, God. I, ne I could never reach that on this. This is silly, right? So, some of the commandments are, uh, or the moral codes, if it's independent of the Judeo-Christian commandments, 
some of the things are obvious and some of the things are wrong. Like, you don't have to honor your father and your mother unless they deserve it. You honor those who deserve honor. If you've got crummy or evil, abusive parents, you should not honor them. You should condemn them morally and get the hell out of there. Uh, there's One of the commandments talks about visiting the retribution upon the third generation as if you could inherit guilt. That's not something that reason would ever figure out because it's false. It's stupid. It's against the idea of what morality is. It's supposed to guide choices. You have no choice about who your father and grandfather are and what they did. It cannot be a moral issue. So either what's good is good and God simply conveys the message to you, in which case you don't need God to have morality. Or it isn't good until God says, okay, I'm making this good. In which case it's just a supreme being's whim. And to obey it might be the practical thing to do, but it's not moral. If you kiss Putin's boots or kneel and pray if God turned out to be real and praise him, that's not a moral act. That's an act of cowardice. It may be justified cowardice, so to speak, because you're really under the life or death threat from this supreme being. But it's not what we think of as moral uh, action. So God's commanding you to do something and you figuring, I better do it, is the opposite of morality, which is the commitment of your own soul out of love for the good to do the good. Now, the other aspect of this is, you know, the idea that we need a morality to restrain ourselves from running amok in the streets has it a, a, an interesting consequence, a fascinating consequence that I only realized fairly recently in my career. If you say to a person, well, can't there be some sec a religious person? Can't there be some secular, this worldly basis for morality? And they will say, no. And no secular consideration can do it. And then you say, well, why do we need morality? They'll say, well, if, you, if we didn't have a morality, people would run amok and rob and steal and civilization would collapse and we'd all starve. It would be horrible. Oh, I thought you said there was no secular reason for morality. If there were no secular reason for morality, then there would be no need for it in this life. 
you would treat it as like uh, saying the catechism by Catholics, saying, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed be the fruit of thy room, Jesus. Now suppose the Catholic said to you, well, if you're an atheist, there's no secular reason why you should say that. You shouldn't say you're Hail Mary. So, I mean, we, we couldn't support, we couldn't give you this worldly reason to say you're Hail Marys. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. And you shouldn't either. There is no secular reason for prayer or saying Hail Marys or any of the rituals of religion. So, but people don't have that attitude towards morality. They don't say it's like saying your prayers. We wouldn't have morality and we wouldn't have prayers there. You, no, they think morality is really necessary because otherwise society would collapse. And there's your this-worldly reason. There's a secular stake in morality that has nothing to do with God. If it's right for people to steal, lie, cheat, murder, rape, and do the things they think we need restraint from, if, the, if it's not wrong, let's say, then it shouldn't have any bad consequences. But we can see that the bad consequences are on you and on society. Now, people pretend... If I can take a little digression here, because you might take issue with something I said, the on you part. People pretend that they think it's in your interest to lie and cheat and steal, but for the larger social good, you shouldn't do it. And that's still a secular reason, but it's a bad one. And I'm saying, no, it's bad for you. But why do I say they pretend that it's good for you? But they don't really believe that. Well, conduct this thought experiment. Imagine you have a beloved child. Uh, this is the light of your life, this child. It's a young boy or young girl. Let's say he's about nine or ten years old. Just you love him to pieces or her. Would you consider for a moment telling the child, listen, I love you so much, I don't think you ought to obey the principles of morality, which are only there for other people. I want you to have a good, happy life, a life of satisfaction and success. Lie and cheat whenever you can. Rob people if their backs are turned. Treat them as beasts for your sacrifice. That's the way you'll live a happy, contented, you know, when you look back uh, at the end of your life, you'll say, boy, I'm glad I cheated and lied and stole, trampled over people. That, that gives me such a warm glow. No, no parent would say that because it's too obvious that that's a recipe for self-destruction. You cannot succeed by choosing a life course of predation upon other people. It's just not feasible, and everybody knows it. 
So we have the combination, you know, they, they, their theories make them say, oh, no, it would be. But secretly, they know it. So we have the combination of two things. Everybody knows what the self-interested course of action in general outline. Let's say they know some contours of a self-fulfilling life course involving only secular considerations. And yet they claim that if there were no external dictator of the universe forbidding us from doing the things that they actually recognize as self-destructive, if there were no, then there would be no, that, that fact would go away or something. I mean, they don't put together the two facts in their minds. Number one, a life of achievement and friendship and honor and honesty is rewarding, brings financial rewards, spiritual rewards, romantic rewards. In this life, in this world, they, they hold that. And then they say, but of course, without God, you couldn't have relig- uh, uh, morality. You couldn't have morality without God. And they, and they know and would advise their own child to live a certain life if they wanted that child to be happy. So there is a this-worldly need for moral principles, for a system of principles to guide your choices. And it's not just restraints. I've only been talking about restraints. But the need is your self-interest. The positives are the need to stick by the judgment of your mind, to keep your mind active and moving, to control your actions by the use of your rational faculty, not your whims. Whims going by emotions, despite your potentially better knowledge of the country, is a formula for death, for self-destruction. During the 60s, they said, if it feels good, I'll do it. Life expectancy goes way down under that policy. So does satisfaction during the time in which you're alive. So the positive that's needed, Ayn Rand observed, in order to achieve your well-being here on Earth is thinking, reason, your own independent reason, not emotion, not crowd-following not pretending, such as that there's a big daddy in the sky who's telling you what to do and guiding you and so forth. So why do people think that there can't be what I just described, uh, this worldly, rational, moral code? Why do they think that can't be? which then makes them turn to some non-rational, supernatural code. Well, there's two reasons that I can think of. One is the history of 
ideas is a history of failure to validate a rational code of ethics. So it's failure to actually define a whole code of ethics and a failure to prove that this is the right code. Ayn Rand changed all that. Ayn Rand gave what was said to be impossible, a rational, reason-derived code of moral values. Now, why did people, besides looking at, you know, well, no philosopher has done it yet, why did, were they convinced that no philosopher would ever do it? And remember, despite knowing in their inner soul that there were principles to guide choices, but they haven't acknowledged it. So it's a, it's a um, an article of faith almost among all the intellectuals, the philosophers and the educators and so forth, that you cannot prove ought, what you ought to do from sheer facts, from what is. And this goes back to David Hume, a philosopher of the uh, 18th century, the 1700s, very influential in the Anglo-Saxon world. Hume said, you can't deduce a statement with ought in it from premises that don't have ought already in them. And if they have ought already in them, then where did that ought come from? Well, an earlier syllogism that then would have to have ought in its premises. So there's no way to have is premises, just factual descriptive premises, and get a normative conclusion, an ought conclusion. And let me give you the um, simple illustration of that. If I say all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is a bald mortal, you could ask, where did bald come from? There's no mention of bald in the premises. And there's a principle of the syllogism, deductive logic. No term can appear in the conclusion unless it was in at least one premise. And then there's his assumption that if uh, ought is in the premise, that makes the premise already a value judgment, already normative. That isn't strictly true, but that's not important because that's not where the real failure comes from. The, the real problem with Hume's is-ought dichotomy is the assumes that all knowledge comes through deduction, through syllogisms. Well, where did your knowledge of cake come from? Did you deduce there must be cakes from statements that didn't have cake in them? The basic means of knowledge is not deduction. The basic means of arriving at new knowledge is induction. Observation of reality, conceptualizing things that are the same that you observe as differentiated from things they differ from, 
then relating concepts to other concepts to form a definition. And that is the basis of, uh, in outline, of all new knowledge. That's where we get, we get our knowledge of cakes by seeing cakes, not by deducing it from some other premises. Weather. According to Hume, there should be a meteorological factual dichotomy. How do you deduce statements about rain from premises that don't contain the word rain? You can't. So the premises must already be meteorological because they must have rain in them. Well, where does the whole thing start? Not from deduction, not from premises, but from observation. Oh, look, what's that stuff? It's called rain. Oh, and look, it, it's wetting things. The basic means of observation is sensory perception and then organizing that and integrating that through the conceptual faculty. It's not through deduction. So Hume added to the prejudice that you can't prove an ethics by this argument that limited all reason to deduction, which is impossible. And it cemented in place the fact that no one had ever proved in 2,000 years of the history of philosophy, proved a rational ethics. No one had really come that close to proving it. But Ayn Rand did prove it. And her proof, just to sketch it, I mean, not to even sketch it, but tell you the crucial identification. The concept of value, which is the core of ethics, the good is that which is a means to a value, to a purpose, a goal, something you're after. The concept of value rests upon the concept of life. The ultimate value in terms of which anything that is good is good, anything that is value is valuable, is your life. That's the identification that grounds all of ethics. From that, you can ask, well, how do I live? And you get a system of principles. But we now know if morality is a code or a system of principles to guide your choices, to guide your choices towards your life, your survival as a certain kind of being. And that is the bridging of the is-ought dichotomy, which requires a lot more discussion, but it points to what the proof is for the full proof. Read The Objectivist Ethics, the first chapter in Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness. And you really, the proof comes up in like the first four pages of that chapter. So that is, we are now at, at 5.30. And there was a question uh, from last time that didn't answer. Let's see. And then I want to summarize. It's too complicated to answer today. Uh, so I will carry it over till uh, next time where we are.
you need a moral code. You need a system of principles in order to achieve your optimal survival. In order that everything you do be on the life premise and not on the death premise. It has nothing to do with supreme being scaring you onto your knees. It has essentially... It's not essentially about thou shalt not, about restraints, about stopping people from murder and theft. That comes out of it, but it's essentially here's what you need to do in order to live. And the basic thing you need to do is to think. Use your faculty of life, which is your mind, your intellect, your reasoning mind. Goodbye, God. We don't need you anymore, if we ever did. P.S. We didn't. See you next week.